0: Hey, everybody, before we start today's episode, we wanted to let you know that Stuff You Missed in History Class has been nominated for a Webby Award this year. We've been nominated for Best Writing in the podcast category. You can vote by going to WebbyAwards.com.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. On the surface, Bacon's Rebellion sounds a little similar to the Regulator War that we talked about on the show a couple of months ago. Both of them took place in England's North American colonies before the Revolutionary War, although Bacon's Rebellion was about a century earlier than the other one. They both involved some divisions between the less affluent, more inland people in the colony and the elite ruling class out on the coast. And as was the case with the regulators, for a long time, Bacon's Rebellion was primarily interpreted as a precursor to the Revolutionary War, with patriotic colonists rising up against the tyranny of the British colonial government. If you studied this in school, up through about the mid to late 20th century, or maybe even later... That might be the version of it that you heard. But on the other hand, historians writing over the last 75 years or so have been focusing on all kinds of factors, including labor and race and colonists' relationships to the Native tribes and the nations who were already in that part of North America and the Native tribes and nations' own relationships to each other. Although some scholars have tried to find, like, one central explanation for this whole incident— It really seems like the deeper you look into it, the more complicated it gets. And there was really just a lot going on. So we are going to be getting into Bacon's Rebellion in two episodes. This was an uprising that involved free farmers and enslaved and indentured people of multiple races and nationalities. So today we're going to talk about how colonial Virginia evolved to look like that in the first place. And then the next episode, we will get to the actual fighting.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Tracy decided later in the game than you might have expected that this was going to be a two-parter, but I suspected early when she texted me last week and said, I think this is the most complicated thing I've tried to untangle.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was like the more I tried to untangle, the more tangle I found. That's often
1: how it plays out. So to put it plainly, the colony of Virginia was established to make money. There was also some focus on converting the Native American population to Christianity. But really, turning a profit was a much bigger priority. To that end, the Virginia Company of London was granted a series of royal charters to establish and govern the colony. So the Virginia Company, not the Crown, assumed the
0: financial risk. Yeah, this whole story is just a lot of people trying to get something with the minimal expense to themselves as possible, The Virginia Company's first charter was granted in 1606, and at first the colony that it established in 1607 really struggled. The colony had a shortage of everything from supplies to just basic skills. The starving time of 1609 to 1610 was particularly bad, and we talked about that on the show back in 2013. One of the problems
1: was that at first the colony didn't have a profitable export crop. That started to change in the 16-teens after John Rolfe introduced strains of tobacco from the Caribbean. Virginia already had its own native tobacco, but British consumers preferred the milder, sweeter Caribbean varieties.
0: Soon after John Rolfe started experimenting with these seeds, tobacco became the foundation of the entire colonial economy and virtually its only export. But this led to a couple of new problems— One, since the colony had all of its eggs in one basket, things like bad weather and fluctuations in tobacco prices and wars could be really catastrophic to the whole economy. And two, the colony needed a much larger workforce than it had to keep this new industry running.
1: To assemble this workforce, investors and planters in 17th century Virginia largely turned to a system of indenture. People signed contracts to work for a specific period of time, essentially losing their freedom for the term of their indenture. In an exchange, they were given passage from Europe to North America. In North America, they were supposed to be provided food, shelter,
0: clothing, and usually the tools that they needed to work. Yeah, sometimes people contracting with indentured workers were like, you got to provide your own tools. It's varied a little bit. But at the end of this contract the workers typically received what was called freedom dues. And this was usually some corn and some clothing. Sometimes the people that had contracted them would give them some tools or some other goods as well. But this was really more of a custom than a legal requirement until way after the events that we're talking about today. So some people didn't do it.
1: This system was based on a model that had existed in parts of Europe for centuries. But in general, it was implemented far more harshly in North America. In England, an apprenticeship might last for years, since apprentices were meant to be learning a specific trade, like blacksmithing or bookbinding. But outside the apprenticeship system, an indenture in England could last for as little as a year.
0: In Virginia, though, indentures lasted as long as seven years, and it depended on how old the person was when they started working, Laws adjusted the exact length from time to time over the 17th century, but in general, the younger the worker was when they signed the indenture, the longer their indenture was for.
1: Also, in North America, contract terms were much stricter. Indentured people had fewer rights and protections, and there were more laws specifically governing their activities and behavior. Punishment for breaking these laws tended to be harsh, And because contract holders had a financial incentive to keep their laborers working for free for as long as possible, punishments also included adding more time to a person's
0: indenture. People signed these indentures for a lot of different reasons. And as examples, a person might genuinely want to immigrate to North America and just have no other way to afford it or they might be in debt in Europe and signing this indenture would have absolved them of their debt, or they might have been convicted of a crime and the indenture was part of their punishment. So while there were some people who signed an indenture freely, for a lot of people, it was somewhere between being forced and being coerced. —
1: Conditions for these workers could be truly appalling. Even though an indenture was supposed to have an end date, a lot of people died of disease, malnourishment, or mistreatment before getting anywhere close to the end of their contract. And of course, there were people who just refused to let their indentured workers go, or who provided them with no sort of freedom dues at all.
0: In spite of that, a lot of people came to North America and Virginia specifically as indentured workers. This was especially true after 1618 when the Virginia Company established what was known as the Headright System. This was part of a series of incentives to try to attract new colonists. The Headright System granted 50 acres of land to each person who had either paid their own way to immigrate to North America or paid someone else's way. So investors and other wealthy people started paying for big groups of people to emigrate as indentured workers, and these investors collected 50 acres of land for each person they brought. This gave the Virginia Company access to a large labor force without having to really pay a lot of money for it because it was essentially reimbursing the investors who were doing the paying with land instead of money.
1: Between 1630 and 1680, three-quarters of all new arrivals in Virginia and neighboring Maryland were indentured, with as much as half of Virginia's population being indentured at one time. Most of Virginia's indentured workers were from Britain and Ireland, but there were indentured workers from other parts of Europe as well. Especially before the 1680s, there were also Native American and African indentured workers
0: it would be going way too far to suggest that all of these workers were treated equally regardless of their race or their nationality. Most European workers probably thought they were superior to the Native and African workers, and there was also something of a hierarchy within the workers from different parts of Europe. But overall, until the mid to late 17th century, Virginia's indentured workers tended to have similar working conditions, granted a lot of times they were similarly terrible And they also had similar opportunities at the end of their indenture. The contract terms tended to be less specific and less defined for Native and African workers, so it really wasn't unheard of for a person's indenture never to formally end, even though it was supposed to be temporary. But there were definitely Africans and people of African descent who got to the end of their indenture and regained their freedom and became landowners themselves with indentured workers of their own.
1: That was starting to change during the period that we're discussing. And the events of Bacon's Rebellion prompted even more changes. And we're going to talk about that more after we have a sponsor break.
0: In the 17th century, indentured workers were not the only unfree labor in Virginia. There were also enslaved Native Americans and enslaved Africans. For the first couple
1: of years after the founding of Jamestown, most of the unfree Native labor in the colony was indentured. That started changing after the First Anglo-Powhatan War started in 1609. This was the first of a series of wars between the English colony and an alliance of about 30 Algonquin-speaking Native peoples. It's known as the Powhatan Confederacy because its leader, Wahoon Sinakawa, was first introduced to the colonists
0: as Powhatan also heard that pronounced a couple of different ways, including exactly how the emphasis goes in Powhatan, or I heard someone say it, Powhatan, and I was like, I never heard anyone say it that way when I was a child. (laughs) (laughs) There was not really a legal framework to do this at first, but the English colonists started treating native prisoners of war from this conflict as slaves. A lot of North America's native tribes were already practicing some form of slavery before Europeans got there. Often this involved enslaving prisoners of war. So the colonists established alliances and trading relationships with the tribes in the area. And as they did this, they started trading weapons and supplies with their native allies in exchange for their native allies' prisoners of war.
1: The enslavement of Native people became a bigger part of the Virginia colony and more legally formalized in the middle of the 17th century. In October of 1646, a treaty ended the Third Anglo-Powhatan War. And this treaty made the remaining tribes of the Powhatan Confederacy tributaries and subject to English rule. One of the provisions of the treaty was that Native children under the age of 12 could voluntarily come to live in English households.
0: So the colonists claimed that what they would be doing was providing these children with shelter and an education and converting them to Christianity. But in reality, they were more like hostages. This provision had been built into the treaty to try to force the Native people to comply with it. Basically, we're taking your children into your, our homes, so you better do what we say because we have your kids. In addition to being treated as hostages, many of these native children were also forced to work as servants.
1: The colony's General Assembly passed a series of laws prohibiting the capture and sale of native children as slaves starting in 1655. But these laws were largely ignored by the colonists, and in some cases, colonial administrators encouraged breaking the law.
0: Then in 1660, the General Assembly passed a law that permitted the enslavement of native prisoners of war. And there were also mass enslavements and retribution for attacks on colonial settlements. So if a tribe attacked a settlement in retaliation, the colonists would enslave huge numbers of people from that tribe. And as was the case in Africa with the transatlantic slave trade, England's willingness to trade guns for people led to increased warfare among the native tribes, as some of them sought more prisoners of war to sell and others just tried to keep from becoming enslaved themselves. In 1670, the General Assembly passed a new law that mandated that Native prisoners of war be indentured rather than enslaved. But as had happened with the laws that prohibited enslaving Native children, a lot of people just ignored this.
1: The treatment of Africans in Virginia followed a somewhat similar trajectory from indenture to enslavement. The first Africans in Virginia are generally noted as having arrived on a ship called the White Lion in August of 1619, although there may have been a small number of other Africans before that point. The White Lion was an English privateer, and its crew had taken a group of Africans prisoner after capturing a Portuguese vessel bound for Mexico.
0: So the crew of the White Lion traded these people for food and supplies, but it's not really clear from the historical record whether the colonists treated them as indentured or enslaved. It may have varied among all of them. They were described as 20 and odd, so a couple of dozen people. Chattel slavery was really well established in Spanish, Portuguese, and Dutch colonies by this point, but British colonies were a little slower to adopt the practice. So in 1619, when the ship arrived, indentures were really encoded in Virginia law, but slavery was not mentioned at all.
1: Regardless of the question of the people sold from the White Lion, there were definitely indentured Africans in Virginia in the early to mid-17th century. Although over time, more Africans started to be held in lifelong bondage.
0: And the legal status of slavery in Virginia also started shifting around 1640. That year, three indentured workers who were contracted to a man named Hugh Gwyn fled from where they were living into Maryland. They were captured and returned to Virginia, where all three of them were whipped. The two European men of these three were sentenced to an additional four years of servitude, but the third man, who was an African man known as John Punch, was sentenced to servitude for the rest of his life. And that was the first incidence of the lifelong servitude of an African in Virginia's legal system. Lifetime enslavement of Africans formally became part of Virginia law in 1661. And then in 1662, the law also specified that, quote, Negro women's children to serve according to the condition of the mother. So slavery was basically passed down from mothers to their children.
1: So... Bacon's Rebellion started in 1676, at which point chattel slavery was relatively new in Virginia, especially in terms of its having some kind of legal framework. And it was unlawful to enslave native prisoners of war for life, but that law was often being ignored.
0: So looking at it a little bit more broadly, in 1676, the colony of Virginia had a population of free people, some of whom had previously been indentured, and these free people were of multiple races and nationalities. Virginia also had a very large number of indentured workers who were also of multiple races and nationalities. And the colony had a much smaller number of enslaved people, which included enslaved Africans and enslaved Native Americans. So regardless, the vast majority of Virginia's labor was not free. And the majority of Virginia's unfree labor at this time was indentured. But all of this was changing.
1: Another thing that was shifting was how the Europeans in this society thought of themselves in relation to everyone else. The idea that European Christians were collectively one group, that group being white people, was fairly new. It was more common for people of European descent to think of their neighbors in terms of their specific nationality or in terms of their religion.
0: So the people living in Virginia at this time really were thinking of things in terms of Christians and non-Christians. Native Americans and Africans were considered non-Christians unless they could prove that they had been baptized. And this was also connected to how people understood slavery because before the mid-1600s, it was only considered acceptable to hold non-Christians in bondage. This was part of the core definition of slavery. And this meant that in some parts of the colony, people were freed after being baptized. In 1667, the Virginia General Assembly passed an act specifying that baptizing an enslaved person did not free them from bondage. We should also
1: note that non-Christians didn't really include Jews at this point because there were very few Jewish people in North America. Aside from a very few individual people, the first known group of Jewish colonists arrived in New York as refugees from Brazil in 1654.
0: Yeah, later on, there were definitely more specific references to Jewish people, but uh, at this time, there were so few that it was just not a big part of the law or people's social understanding. To sum all of this up, Bacon's Rebellion united a lot of parts of the society, including free farmers and indentured workers and enslaved Africans, all against a perceived Native American threat. And then they turned their attention against the colonial government. And we will get to why people were so frustrated with the government after a sponsor break. Before the break, we talked about the enslavement of Native Americans and Africans in Virginia from the earliest years of the colony up through the 1670s. And now we need to rewind just a little bit to talk about how the colonial government developed because that was a big source of frustration leading into Bacon's rebellion. At the top of the show, we talked about how the Virginia Company established the colony at Jamestown in 1607. In 1618, the company drafted a set of instructions for newly appointed governor, Sir George Yeardley. These instructions were called the Great Charter, and they included the headright system that we talked about earlier. The Great Charter also
1: included instructions about the colony's governance. The company decided to establish an elected body of representatives so that the colonists could have some say in the government, while the colony stayed in the company's control. These representatives were known as Burgesses, and they were elected to represent each settlement. Together, the Burgesses, the Governor's Council, and the Governor formed a unicameral body. That was the General Assembly that has come up a couple of times in this episode.
0: But in spite of ongoing reforms through these decades and all these instructions that were detailed in the Great Charter, the colony still just was not thriving. The Virginia Company never managed to get out of debt even though it was not paying the vast majority of its labor. By the 1620s, critics were also raising serious questions about the company and how it was running things. So in 1624, after a year-long investigation, the Crown revoked the company's charter and took direct control of the colony, appointing a royal governor and other officials.
1: This was a massive change for the colonists, especially because for the first several years, the General Assembly had no formal recognition. The colonists were frustrated and angry over the situation since they'd gone from being at least somewhat self-governing with an elected assembly to being under the control of a governor who was appointed by the monarch.
0: The crown did eventually recognize the assembly. And then in 1643, Governor Sir William Berkeley split the Burgesses off into their own house of the government. And so this turned the colony's unicameral legislature into a bicameral one, His goal in doing this was part of a plan to try to create a stable central government for the colony. But a side effect of splitting the Burgesses into their own house was that the Burgesses, who had always been mostly made up of the colony's gentry, they became increasingly focused on their own needs and the needs of other rich colonists. So the colony's less affluent people really felt like they didn't have a voice in the government anymore.
1: Throughout all this time, tobacco continued to be the foundation of Virginia's economy. Tobacco prices had started to drop around the 1620s as exports from North America and the Caribbean flooded the British market. The Dutch also bought a lot of tobacco from Virginia, and that revenue was cut off completely during the First Anglo-Dutch War, which started in 1652. Then in 1660, Parliament passed the Navigation Act, which required Virginia's exports to be sent through English ports on English ships. That, once again, upended Virginia's tobacco trade with the Dutch Republic, since the colony could no longer sell directly to the Dutch.
0: Yeah, once the war was over, they had resumed that trade, and then the Navigation Acts meant that they could not do it anymore. And then, of course, because it was a war, there were also all of the other wartime effects, including the colony being directly attacked. Also in 1660, Sir William Berkeley was appointed the governor of Virginia for a second time. His separation of the Burgesses into their own house and the government had happened during his first term. That first term lasted from 1641 to 1652, and it largely took place during the English Civil War. Berkeley himself was a royalist, so when that side lost the war, he naturally lost his position as governor not long afterward.
1: Charles II was restored to the throne in 1660, and Berkeley's first term as governor had gone well enough that the king restored him to the position but the second term did not go nearly as well. In his first term, Berkeley had encouraged Virginia farmers and planters to diversify their crops so the colonial economy wouldn't be so susceptible to everything from weather to wars. Charles II approved a formal plan to do this during Berkeley's second term, but Berkeley's attempts to carry it out just didn't go well. Taxes were increased to fund the diversification effort, which meant that planters felt like they were being taxed in order to make a change that they didn't even want to make in the first place. The diversification effort fizzled and tobacco remained as the primary export crop. So when the Second Anglo-Dutch War started in 1665, planters' incomes once again plummeted.
0: Planters were also becoming frustrated because of some of the consequences of the headright system that we talked about earlier. The land that was granted to people under that system was not the most fertile, farmable land out in the Tidewater area of the colony. It was farther inland, where it was a lot rockier, the soil was not as rich. Some of it was on the other side of the fall line, which made it harder to transport goods out to the coast. And the more people moved into this territory, the more frustrated they were about this disparity between the people out on the Tidewater and people in the inner coastal plain. Governor Berkeley was also really fond of granting some of the best land to people that he liked as rewards, and that meant that that extra good land was not available to sell to anyone else.
1: Those earlier issues with colonists feeling like they weren't represented in the government resurfaced in 1670 when the assembly adopted legislation that restricted the right to vote only to people who owned taxable land. This disenfranchised a lot of previously eligible voters. On top of that, there hadn't been a new election for the assembly in eight years. So only the wealthiest and most elite people in the colony felt represented in the government, since they were the ones connected to the Burgesses who had been serving all that time.
0: As if that was not enough, on top of all of this, in 1672, Charles II granted all of Virginia's revenues to the Lords Arlington and Culpeper, And this led the governor of Virginia to raise taxes again, both to try to offset that loss of revenue and to pay for an appeal to try to get the grant reversed.
1: All of these things that we've talked about today led to the British colony's first violent uprising among its colonists. And we are going to talk about that on our next show.
0: I have a little bit of listener mail to close us out. And this is about our not-that-long-ago episode on Raphael Lemkin and the Genocide Convention. It is from Nate. Nate says, hello, Tracy and Holly. I just wanted to add a note to your episode on Raphael Lemkin and the genocide convention. You mentioned that Lemkin studied law at Lvov, Poland, which is now in Ukraine and called Lviv. While Limkin was working to define genocide as a crime, the related but distinct legal concept of crimes against humanity was being developed by Hirsch Lauterpacht, who had studied law at the same university. The parallels between the two continued at the Nuremberg trial, where Lauterpacht was an advisor to the British prosecutors while Limkin was an advisor to the Americans. Both men lost relatives in the Holocaust, and at Nuremberg, they came face-to-face with a defendant most directly responsible for these deaths, Hans Frank, the Nazi governor of Poland. I learned this and more in a fascinating book called East-West Street by Philippa Sands, which I highly recommend. Keep up the good work, Nate. Thank you, Nate. I wanted to read this email for two reasons. One, uh, to include that tidbit about Lauterpacht and the idea of uh, crimes against humanity, because that did come up in my research and was not something that we really got into in uh, the the episode as much. Um, one of Lemkin's sources of frustration was that it seemed like sometimes there was more focus on this idea of crimes against humanity, and he really felt like there needed to be a legal focus on the idea of genocide and on preventing and prosecuting genocide. And then I also wanted to clarify, because I don't think I said that uh, that he had studied law in Lvov, Poland. I, I'm not sure what gave that impression. What I did say that was definitely confusing, or what I did write that was definitely confusing, I don't remember which of us said it in the actual episode, uh, is that um, I made it sound like the University of Heidelberg and Lvov, which is now Lviv, uh, was one place. Those are, in fact, two different universities, and Limpkin uh, studied at both of those universities at different times. So if anybody got the impression that there used to be a university that was called the University of Heidelberg and Lviv, that is two different places. And Lviv, yes, is in Ukraine now. Uh, so thank you, Nate, for letting me share that. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we are at History podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we're all over social media at Missed in History. We are at Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram as Myst in History. And then you can come to our website, which is mystinhistory.com, and find a searchable archive of all the episodes we've ever done and the show notes for the episodes that Holly and I have worked on together. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio app, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. <laughs>